Have you ever taken the time to investigate the meaning of your name? And if so, were you disappointed with what you found out? (laughs) I'm guessing that most of us have at some point in time looked up the meaning of our names. And not only that, but I'm also certain that most expecting mothers here in America have spent some time poring over the baby name books that that, that help us to to find meaningful names that would impart blessings to our babies. And, And one example of this well, is found in the, in the popular lists that are found online. You can go and see what are the most popular names or baby names today. You know, right now in 2023, the most popular name for girls is Olivia, which actually is Latin for olive tree. Uh, then second on the list is Emma, which means universal or, or, or whole. And then there's the third most popular girl name, which is Charlotte, Uh, which is actually a name that means petite. As for the boys, the most popular name for 2023 is Liam, which is an Irish name meaning strong-willed warrior and protector. And if you name your little boy Liam, he will have a a, a set of skills that are... uh, The second most popular boy name right now is Noah, which means rest. And so if you're hoping that your young boy sleeps a lot, you might name him Noah. The third name on the list is, get this, Oliver, which is the masculine form of Olivia. And so if you just want to name your child Olive Tree and you're not really knowing whether it's a boy or a girl yet, then just wait because you can go with Oliver or Olivia. Now, as we consider these long lists of baby names that reveal the current trends that are happening here in America, you might like to know that there are also lists that include future trends in baby names. And so if you're getting ready to name your baby, but you, know, you don't want to get stuck with one of the, one of the names that everyone's going to have this year, and you want to look forward to something that might be a little more cutting edge, you might look at those, <clears throat> those lists that include future baby names. For example, one up-and-coming popular name for boys is Dutton. Dutton, yeah. Kids, you know, parents are calling their kids Dutton and Zen. Uh, also, Jeru or Killian. You know, and and you know, I don't want to come across a little boy named Killian one day because I. It sounds kind of violent, but uh, but listen, there's also little girl names that are becoming popular, like Renly and Jareem. Uh, or how about Soul and Alora? And, uh, you know, it all just kind of seems like a space fantasy, really. But, uh, but, you know, before I get too excited about laughing about these new strange names, I have to remind myself that I'm called Bungie. And uh, so there's that. <laughs> I can assure you, though, that my nickname isn't the most unusual name out there. As a matter of fact, there's a little girl in the world today whose parents named her Portabella. That's right. She's named after a mushroom. Then there's the parents who name their baby after their favorite social media network, Facebook. That's right. And one day this kid's going to open an account on Facebook and he's going to be called Facebook. And, and, And so there's the child who recently received the name hashtag, because why not? You know, another dad decided to name his son John version 2.0. Yeah, that's the legal name, John version 2.0. There's the couple who got pregnant during the pandemic, and so they decided to name their twins COVID and Corona. So they, yeah, they're stuck with that. And it's sad to say that another pandemic baby ended up getting stuck with the name Sanitizer. 
<laughs> Can you imagine? I can't even imagine, you know, being named something silly like Portabella or Hashtag or Sanitizer, said Bungie Garrett. But seriously, can you imagine the pressure that we would feel if we were actually given the name that's above every name, Jesus Christ? How'd you like to live up to that name? Here in our time today, I want to consider the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we study the scriptures before us this morning, we're going to begin to see, first of all, that the name of Jesus, it it includes great content, and, and we'll see that the name of Jesus actually reveals God's goodness. Secondly, we'll learn that the name of Jesus reveals God's greatness. Thirdly, and finally, we'll learn that the name of Jesus, it reveals God's graciousness. Well, with this as our outline, let's open our Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Here we find Paul. He's encouraging the Christians there in Thessalonica to glorify the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we make our way to the first chapter of 2 Thessalonians, I just want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. I'll remind you that it was in our study last week. That's when we learned about the just judgment of God. And it was during that study when we considered the way in which the just judgment of God is lawful and vengeful and even fearful. Well, now here in our text today, we find Paul. He's encouraging the original recipients of this epistle by informing them about the prayers that he was praying on their behalf. And with this as the focus, we're going to take some time today to consider the way that Paul prayed for the Christians there in Thessalonica so that they might live a life that glorifies God in the name of Jesus Christ. And so with that, let's begin our study of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 11, here Paul writes, Therefore we also pray always for you, that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here in these verses we find Paul, he's praying for the Christians there in Thessalonica, and he's praying that the Lord might count them as believers who were walking worthy of the calling of Christ. Now if this sounds uh, uh, familiar to you, it's because this prayer request is similar to the statement that Paul made back in the beginning of this chapter. It was back in verse 5. There he assured them that their patience and their faith, that this was evidence that they would be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. Well, now here in our text today, we find Paul praying, and he's praying for the Lord our God to count them worthy of their calling. And in order to understand this prayer request, I want to take some time to consider the calling of Christ. Now, it'll first help you to know that the Greek word, which is rendered here calling, it's used in reference to the invitation that the Holy Spirit extends to every single sinner so that they might receive the free gift of grace, which Jesus secured for us there on the cross. And seeing how the calling of Christ then results in our salvation, which then results in our sanctification, well, there should be no doubt that those who are counted worthy of Christ's calling, these are the believers who are then being conformed to the image of Christ Jesus, which is according to his good pleasure. 
in order to explain my point. Let's take a closer look at our text today. And if you would, let's back up and begin reading once again at verse 11. There again, Paul declares, We also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you. Now, I want to stop right here. I, I want to consider how those who fulfill all the good pleasure of God's goodness are simultaneously glorifying the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are fulfilling all the good pleasure of God's goodness are glorifying the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so with this as the goal, it'll help you to know that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, it actually helps us to understand what is the good pleasure of God's goodness. Think about that. What is the good pleasure of God's goodness? Well, the answer is found in the name of Jesus Christ. And to prove my point, let's take some time to consider the way that our Savior received his name. And, and with that, I want you to hold your place here in Second Thessalonians, and let's turn in our Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. If you would, let's turn to Matthew chapter 1. As you make your way to the first chapter of Matthew's Gospel account, well, I just want to help you to know that Mary didn't find the name Jesus in an ancient baby name book. You know, she wasn't there in the first century going online and looking for the most, you know, popular names in Israel there in the first century. No, no, no. That's not the way she, you know, named Jesus. Instead, the name of our Savior was actually revealed to Joseph and to Mary on two separate occasions by an angel who showed up to confirm the supernatural Savior uh, and, and, you know, and the name of Mary's uh, supernatural son. And, and, I, and I want to consider how Matthew's uh, how Matthew records this revelation, which is found here in Matthew chapter 1. If you would look with me there in the middle of verse 20. Here the angel of the Lord declares, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Here in these verses, we find this angel of the Lord showing up to instruct Joseph to go ahead and name the supernatural son of Mary, Jesus. And while there are those who are quick to insist that, well, he's not really named Jesus, he's named Yeshua, you know, and, and they'll, these are the people who want to try to convince us that Jesus really means Hail Zeus. You know, and you can find these people arguing this online all over the place. And if you use the word Jesus, if you use the name Jesus, you're really saying, hail Zeus. And listen, I'd like to assure you that th there is no rational basis for this argument. That there's no rational basis for arguing that the name Jesus actually means hail Zeus. No, not at all. And at the same time, it's important for us to realize that the angel who spoke to Joseph, he probably presented him with the Hebrew name, which is Yeshua, and not our transliteration, which is Jesus. And, and with that, it'll, it'll, it might help you to know this, that, that Jesus is actually the English version of the Latin Isis, and the Latin word Isis was a, tr a transliteration of the Greek word 
Esos, which is a letter-for-letter translation of the Hebrew name Yeshua. And listen, Yeshua was the shortened informal version of the Hebrew name Yehoshua. So kind of like if you have somebody that's called Jonathan and you decide to call them John, that's the shortened informal version of that, right? And so the formal name of Jesus is actually Yehoshua. And then through the whole process of translations and transliterations, we end up with the English word Jesus. Some, though, still insist that those who use the English name Jesus are using the wrong name. These people are actually making much to do about nothing. And the reason why? It's because the name Jesus has the same exact meaning as the name Yehoshua and Yeshua. The proof of my point is found in the fact that the Hebrew name Yehoshua means Yahweh is salvation. That's what Yehoshua means. Yahweh is salvation. And then the shortened version of Yehoshua, which is pronounced Yeshua, you know what that name means? Yahweh is salvation. Furthermore, the Greek translation Eosis is the, and also the Latin trans- transliteration Esus Guess what they mean? Yahweh is salvation. That's right. And listen, the modern English translation that comes from the Latin, which is pronounced Jesus, guess what Jesus means? You guessed it. Yahweh is salvation. So no matter which of these names you're using, they all mean the same thing, which that's what's important about the name, right? The meaning of the name. Yahweh is salvation. The modern translation from Latin is it, you know Jesus means Yahweh is salvation. And just to be clear about this definition, it'll help you to know that Yahweh is the sacred name of God. And that's important to understand. Some say Jehovah, some say Yahweh. I've heard it both ways. Uh, you know, but, but I'm going with Yahweh, and, and Yahweh is the sacred name of God, which is based on the Tetragrammaton. And, and, and therefore, the Hebrew name, Yehoshua, is the... English name, it translates down to the English name Jesus, and both of these names point to the salvation that is offered up by Yahweh. Jesus, when we worship Jesus or when we worship Yeshua, you know, whichever you want to say in your prayers, whichever you cry out in, in your time of worship, both mean Yahweh is salvation. Now, with all this in mind, there should be no doubt that. God the Father chose this specific name for our Savior because of the way in which the name of the Lord reveals the good pleasure of his goodness. Think about it. Whether we're talking about the Hebrew name Yeshua or the English name Jesus, the name of our Savior in every language helps us to know that Yahweh wants to save sinners like us. Isn't that incredible? Isn't it nice to know that God the Father didn't pick another name for our Savior, like one that would translate to Jesus wants to punish you, you know, or Jesus wants to destroy you, Jesus wants to send you to hell. What what if the name of our Savior translated to something like that? That would be a lot less hopeful, huh? Thankfully, God the Father chose the name Jesus, which points us to the good pleasure of his goodness which is to do what? Which is to save sinners, sinners like us. 
Not only that, but listen, our Savior is also calling us then. He's calling every Christian to help him fulfill the good pleasure of his goodness so that we can set out to serve our Savior according to the leading of the Lord. And I want to consider how Paul puts it here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. So if you would, look with me there again at 2 Thessalonians 1, beginning at verse 11. There he declares, We also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. As we take another look at these verses, we find Paul, he's encouraging every Christian to, to realize that we are called to walk worthy of Christ's calling. And one way that we do this is by doing our part to fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness. Just to be clear, the Greek word that's translated, good pleasure, it speaks of something, uh, you know, it speaks of benevolent kindness. In this context, Paul here is referring to the good pleasure or the benevolent kindness of God. And this benevolent kindness of God, well, it's revealed in the name of Jesus. Yeah, the benevolent kindness of God is revealed in the name of Jesus, which again is translated what? Yahweh is salvation. We should also notice there in the middle of verse 11, there Paul encouraged his audience to fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness. Yeah, we're called to fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness. In other words, the Christian who is walking worthy of Christ's calling is also determined to fulfill the benevolent kindness of God's goodness, which is revealed in the name of Jesus. And what this means then is that we've been called to help unbelievers to discover the goodness of God by helping them to see that Yahweh is able to save those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this way, we can see how the name of Jesus actually reveals the good pleasure of God's goodness. I like the way that Paul explained it in Romans chapter 10. There he asks, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not heard? Now this is in response to something that he said in verse 13. There he says, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Now, here in these verses, we find Paul, he's encouraging the Christians there in Rome to go out and preach the gospel of peace. That's what we've been called to do, to go out and preach the gospel of peace. And just to be clear, that word gospel, well, it speaks of good news. The word gospel speaks of good news. And in this context, we're talking about the good news that helps us to understand that salvation can be received by faith in Jesus Christ. The believer who wants to fulfill the good pleasure of God's goodness ought to spend time preaching the good news. 
Because the good news is about the salvation that Yahweh secured through the sacrifice of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And what this means then is that the name of Jesus reveals God's goodness, which is defined by the gospel message, which is the good news about how he goes about saving sinners like us. And while it's true that the name of Jesus reveals God's goodness, it's also true that the name of Jesus reveals God's greatness. Now, to make my case, let's turn our attention back to the prayer that Paul presented here in our text today. If you would, let's take another look there at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I want to focus your attention once again at verse 11. Here Paul declares, We also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. Now, that word power... It's translated from the Greek word dynamis, which is actually the basis for our English words dynamic and dynamite. The original Greek word was used in reference to inherent power. It's it's the word that talks about the inherent power which resides in a thing by virtue of its nature. For example, bodybuilders have the inherent power of physical strength. You know, those who are working out their muscles and, and, and those who are, are getting stronger, they end up having the inherent power of physical strength. And, and then there's billionaires. You know, billionaires have the inherent power of their financial wealth. There's a, a, a level of power that comes along with wealth. And the wealthier you are, the more power you have. Government leaders have the power, uh, the inherent power of the office that they hold. And the greater the office, the greater the power, just by nature of the office itself. Well, in similar fashion, you know, our creator has power that's inherent of his nature. And and seeing how our creator is an infinite God, well, how much power does he have? Well, by the nature of his infinite, you uh, uh, you know, being, he has infinite power. He's all powerful or omniscient, or I'm sorry, omnipotent. In order to further prove my point, I would appeal to the cosmological argument that you know, helps us to understand that you know, the, the, the creation in which we live in you know, proves that there is an infinitely powerful God who exists. And, and so the cosmolo- uh, cosmological argument helps us to see that everything that begins to exist must ultimately find its cause in an uncreated creator. For example, I can point to my parents as the reason why I'm here, right? But then they can point to their parents, and they can point to their parents. But that has to stop at some point. And we have to stop eventually at an infinite, uncaused creator who exists in infinity or, uh, or is timeless. And so whether we're talking about the entirety of the universe or the finite individuals who exist here on this earth, there must ultimately be an infinite, uncaused creator who created everything finite within this finite universe in which we exist. And in order to grasp the infinite power of our creator, we should take a moment to consider Moses' account of the way in which the Lord created the entire universe out of nothing. We actually find this in Genesis chapter 1. There Moses describes the creative power of the Lord by declaring this. He says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now just to be clear here, it will help you to know that the Hebrew word which is translated created 
It's, it's actually translated from, from the Hebrew word bara, which in this context is speaking of something that's being created out of nothing. When Moses tells us that it was in the beginning when God created, he's effectively saying, in the beginning of time, God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. Now, there's creative people here on the planet, and and God has actually created us to be creative. And so creative people often take God's creation and manipulate God's creation to create other things. and, And all that is wonderful. And yet, none of us have ever created something out of nothing. And, and, and it's never going to happen. We can't create something out of nothing. We don't have that kind of power. So what kind of power would it take to create something from nothing? I would argue it would take infinite power. It would take an infinite amount of power for a creator to create the entire universe and everything in it out of nothing. And that's what God did. God created the earth and all of the heavens and and, and everything within our universe. He created it all out of nothing. And with that being the case, there should be no doubt in our minds that our creator possesses the infinite power which is necessary for creating the entire universe from nothing. Now, you might be wondering, well, how does this apply to the Lord Jesus Christ? And I would say, great question. Let's, Let's figure this out, right? How does this apply to the Lord Jesus? Well, with that, I want to take some time to consider something that the Apostle John wrote in his gospel account. And so if you would hold your place here in 2 Thessalonians, and let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 1. Now, as you make your way to the first chapter of John's gospel account, I just want to take a moment to remind you about the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ. To put it plainly, the Lord Jesus has a union of two natures. In other words, Jesus Christ is 100% God, and at the same time, he's 100% man. Or, or I might have put it, put it like this, the Lord Jesus has a union of two natures, which includes his humanity, being the son of Mary, and then also his, his divine nature, being the son of God. And it's here in John chapter 1 where John is referring to the divine nature of Jesus, referring to the divine nature as the word, or what we find in the Greek, the logos of God. Look with me here at John chapter 1. We'll begin reading at verse 1. Here John declares, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Here in these verses we find John, he's providing us with more insight into the creation account that we find back in the book of beginnings, which is Genesis. And much like Moses, John began his first book with the phrase, in the beginning. That's what we find in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning. John is saying, in the beginning. And so he's connecting John chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 1. And it's here in John chapter 1 where the Apostle John informs us that the deity of Jesus Christ was there in the beginning. He was there with God because he was God. And it's here where the Apostle John informs us that the deity of Jesus was part of the creation. You see, our triune God, being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, used his infinite power to create our finite universe. And what this means then is that the deity of Jesus actually helps us to grasp the infinite power of God. 
the deity of Jesus, the Logos, helps us to grasp the infinite power of God. And, and to further explain what I mean, we should consider something that Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1. It's in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18, where Paul writes this, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the preeminent over all creation, for by him, speaking of Jesus, by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Here in these verses, we find Paul helping his audience to understand that the deity of Jesus took part in the creation of the universe because he was there with God the Father and was God. The deity of Jesus took part in the creation of our universe. And not only that, but the humanity of his incarnation also ends up being preeminent over the entirety of his creation, which includes his church. And with that being the case, we shouldn't be surprised to learn that the Lord Jesus is not only preeminent over his creation, but he's also received the name which is above every other name. This was precisely the point that Paul was making in Philippians chapter 2. There we learn that God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here in these verses, we find Paul. He's helping the Christians there at the church in Philippi to understand that God the Father has granted all authority unto our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And it's for this reason that every knee is eventually going to bow before the Lord Jesus. Every tongue is eventually going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And at the same time, Paul also insists then that there is no greater name than the name of Jesus. Because it's the name of Jesus that has the power to save. It's the name of Jesus that has the power to save. The Apostle Peter confirms this in Acts chapter 4. It's verse 12 where he declares, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Grasp that for a minute. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. That's right. The only name that has omnipotent power to save is the name of the Lord, Jesus. Trust me when I tell you that the name of Buddha cannot save because Siddhartha is in the grave. He's dead. He can't save you. The name of Muhammad can't save us because Muhammad is dead and in the grave. And I get it. There's a bunch of other guys called Muhammad now, but the guy that started the, the Islamic faith, he cannot save you. 
Because he's dead. The name of Krishna cannot save because Krishna is dead. And I get it, you know, he's a fictional character, but, but even in, the, in their theology, he's dead. Krishna is not going to come and save you. Those who call upon the name of Krishna will not be saved. Jesus alone has the power to save us because Jesus is the Almighty One who actually raised himself up from the grave on the third day. That's right. And this is precisely the promise that the Lord Jesus himself made in John chapter 10. It's verse 17 where he declares this. He says, My Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again, this command I have received from my Father. Think about that for a moment now. The Lord Jesus not only had the power to lay down his life for our salvation, but he also had the power to take his life up again, which is clearly a reference to the resurrection. In other words, the deity of Jesus who had the power to create the universe is the same Jesus who has the power to raise his lifeless corpse up from the grave. And as we study the fullness of scriptures, we learn that each person within our triune God raised Jesus from the dead. We know that the Father raised Jesus from the dead. We know that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. And here we learn Jesus himself raised Jesus from the dead. The deity of Jesus raised the humanity of Jesus from the dead. Think about how much power that takes. Like, are you going to raise you up from the dead? Nope. I have a hard time getting out of bed in the morning. Let alone the power to raise myself up from the grave. But the Lord Jesus raised himself up from the grave. How incredible is that? With all this in mind, I want to remind you of a promise that Jesus presented in John chapter 11. It's verses 25 and 26 where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Christian, listen, the Lord Jesus not only had the power to raise his own lifeless body up from the grave, but he also has the omnipotent power which is necessary for raising our bodies up from the grave. That's right. This is precisely what he was promising to do here. He was promising to raise our bodies from the grave if we trust in him. Those who trust in the preeminence of his holy name can rejoice in knowing that Jesus will raise us up from the grave. And listen, if our risen Redeemer has the power to raise our bodies up from the grave, then there should be no doubt that, can, that he can also provide us with the power we need to serve our Savior today. You know that? Do you realize that? If Jesus has the power to raise our dead bodies up from the grave, then doesn't he also have the power to enable you to serve him? Oh, I'd hope so. 
And with this in mind, I want you to make our way back here to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I want to take another look here at verse 11. Here again, Paul declares, We also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you. Now again, I want to stop here and and I want to point out that those who want to be counted worthy of Christ's calling should set out to fulfill the work of faith according to the almighty power of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we're going to be counted worthy of Christ's calling, we should set out to fulfill the work of faith according to the almighty power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And with this as the goal, those who want to accomplish the good works of God must first make sure that we actually have a faith that recognizes Jesus Christ as Lord. And now in order to better grasp the the meaning of this messianic title, Lord, uh, we should consider a question that Jesus once presented. The question I'm referring to is found in Luke chapter 4. It's verse 46 where Jesus asks his audience this. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? The Lord Jesus was challenging those who were calling him Lord. And yet they were simultaneously failing to submit themselves to his preeminent authority. And as we consider this question, we should take a moment to examine our own lives by asking this. Is Jesus really my Lord? Is Jesus really your Lord? Christian, listen. The believer who wants to fulfill the good works of faith according to the almighty power of our Savior, they must first submit themselves to the authority and the superiority of our Savior as we recognize the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It's when we begin to realize that Jesus Christ is the Lord of Lords, when we will finally begin to fulfill the good works of faith as we realize that He is the almighty creator who alone has the preeminent power to raise our lifeless bodies up from the grave. And therefore, we need to walk in his power today so that we can actually serve him according to his calling. You know that you're not going to be able to accomplish the ministry of the Lord in your own power? You don't have the power. I don't have the power that is necessary for accomplishing the supernatural things that the Lord is calling us to accomplish. That's why so many Christians burn out. So many Christians will step up to try to serve the Lord, but they try to serve the Lord in their own strength, according to their own wisdom, according to their own power. And inevitably, they burn out. The Lord's not asking you to serve him in your strength. The Lord is calling you to accomplish the work of faith by his power and for his glory. The believer who wants to fulfill the good works of faith according to the almighty power of our Savior must submit themselves to the authority and the superiority of our Savior as we recognize the lordship of Jesus Christ. And as we begin to realize that Jesus is the Lord of lords, that's when we begin to fulfill the good works of faith realizing that he is the one who has the power that we need to live our lives for him. 
but it begins when we realize his name is greater than mine. His name is greater than yours. He has the name that is above every name. And so we must recognize in the name of Jesus the ultimate greatness of our God. And from this we can see that the name of Jesus, it reveals God's goodness. And the name of Jesus also reveals God's greatness. Thirdly and finally, we should consider how the name of Jesus reveals God's graciousness. And to make my case, let's make our way back to uh, the, the prayer that Paul presents here in our text today. If you would look with me again here at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I want to focus your attention once again at verse 11. Because here again, Paul declares, We also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here in these verses we find Paul praying for the Christians there in Thessalonica so that they might live a life that brings glory to the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you might not know this, but listen, the primary purpose of every person is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That might be the first time you've ever heard this, but it's true. The primary purpose of every person is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And what this means then is that everything that we do and everything that we say, it ought to be motivated by the desire to glorify God. This was precisely the point that Paul was making in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. There he declares, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This is our primary purpose. And to elaborate on this primary purpose, I should also point out that we are called to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. As a matter of fact, it's in Colossians chapter 3. It's verse 17. There Paul declares... Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do in word or deed should be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. And just to be clear, listen, this doesn't mean that uh, you should walk around your, and, and as you live your life, you know, that everything you do, you tack on the phrase, in the name of Jesus. You know, you're, you're going out for a burger, you know, every bite, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. Take a sip of soda, in the name of Jesus. We're not being called to chant some sort of mantra. And you know, there's a lot of people who end prayers in the name of Jesus and yet prayed for something that Jesus would never pray for. But they think that in the name of Jesus is some sort of magical little way to end the prayer that if we say in the name of Jesus, then Jesus has to answer it, right? Nope, not true. You see, the phrase in the name of Jesus or in the name of, that phrase actually refers to the character of the individual being named. You know, for example, if you did something in the name of Bungie and yet you did something that I would never do, then you can't say it was done in the name of Bungie. If you're going to do something in the name of Bungie, then it would have to be something that I would actually do. Like if you were to go and and order a single burger with no cheese in the name of Bungie. Nope. Every real burger is 
two patties and two slices of cheese. And you know there are some restaurants that have a, a, a double meat, single cheese element, and I just think that those places are of the devil. Every double meat burger should come with two slices of cheese. But that, you know, hey, that's just in the name of bungee. But there are people who are praying in the name of Jesus. They tack that onto the end of their prayer, but they prayed for something that Jesus would never pray for. Praying something that is, you know, in conflict with the will of the Lord and then tacking on in the name of Jesus, it really just shows that you don't understand the name of Jesus. If you want to do something in the name of Jesus, then we must do it according to the character of Christ Jesus. And what this means then is that those who want to glorify God should do everything according to the character of Christ. With this as the goal, it's important for us to grasp what is the character of Christ so that we can make sure that we are doing everything in his name. And with this as the focus, I want to consider the way that the Apostle John describes the character of Christ. And if you would, hold your place here in Second Thessalonians and let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 1. And as you make your way to the first chapter of John's gospel account, I just want to take a moment to remind you that it's in the beginning of this gospel account where we find John, he's again reminding us about the deity of the Lord Jesus, which he refers to as the word or the Logos in Greek, and it's here in the same exact chapter where John goes on uh, you know, to advance this narrative by describing the incarnation of the Logos. If you would look with me here at John chapter 1, I'm going to focus your attention at verse 14. Here the Apostle John tells us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. According to the Apostle John, the word, which remember is the Logos of God, became flesh. Or in other words, he tabernacled amongst us. And in this way, God the Father was revealing his glory through the miraculous incarnation of our Messiah. And just to be clear about this, listen, the character of the Lord Jesus actually revealed the glory of the Father. As the people watched Jesus interacting with others and engaging in miracles and, you know, preaching the gospel and all these sorts of things, as, as those first century Jews interacted with the Lord Jesus Christ, they saw a demonstration of the grace and the truth of God, which is why Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is the physical manifestation of the glory of God. And this is demonstrated through the grace and the truth that he expressed. And in order to elaborate on this statement, the Apostle John goes on to quote John the Baptist. And if you would look with me again here at John chapter 1, I want to pick up at verse 15. Here the Apostle John goes on to declare that John, speaking of John the Baptist, John bore witness of him and cried out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received. And grace for grace, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. 
Here in these verses, we find the apostle John. He's appealing to the day when John the Baptist identified the preeminence of Jesus Christ. And the apostle John went on to inform us about the way in which the incarnation of Christ Jesus has provided us with an understandable declaration of God's grace and truth. And seeing how the grace and the truth of God was revealed through Jesus Christ, well, then it only stands to reason that those who are doing all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ are simultaneously walking in the grace and in the truth of God. To further explain my point, let's make our way back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I want to take one more look at our text today, beginning at verse 11. Here Paul declares, We also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to what? According to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we take another look at these verses, we must not fail to notice here that those who want to live a life that glorifies the name of our Lord Jesus Christ must live according to the grace of our God and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And just to be clear, I want to remind you that the grace that Paul was referring to, it's the unearned and unmerited favor of God by which sinners can be forgiven. It's the unearned and unmerited favor of God by which sinners can be forgiven. In other words, the grace of God is the undeserved gift of forgiveness by which sinners are saved when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. There's a clever acronym that helps us to remember what grace means. The acronym is this, God's riches at Christ's expense. I love that. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. All of the riches of God have been made available to us at the expense of our Savior's sacrifice. Jesus poured out his blood, making the ransom payment for our salvation. And so grace is God's riches that come to us at Christ's expense. And while it's true that the grace of God is received by faith in the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ, it's also true that we're called now, Christian, to walk according to the grace of God as we set out to live our lives in a way that glorifies the name of Jesus Christ. And in this way, the Lord Jesus will strengthen us and perfect us by the same grace. I like the way that the Apostle Peter explains it in 1 Peter chapter 5. There he declares, May the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. According to the Apostle Peter, the God of all grace has graciously given every believer the opportunity to to take part in his eternal glory by faith in Christ Jesus. And with that being the case, the Lord is actually calling every Christian to walk according to the same grace that we've received. That even in the midst of suffering and struggling and even on our most difficult of days, that we've been called to walk in the grace of God. And as we walk in the grace of God He will perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle us 
according to the character of Christ. And in this way, we're able to bring glory to the name of the Lord as we walk in the transformative power of God's grace. Now, as we begin to wrap up this study, I just want to take a moment to remind you that the name of the Lord Jesus is more than just a name. The name of the Lord Jesus is more than just a name. The, 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 the name of Jesus is the name that's above every name. He has the name above every name, and the reason why? Well, it's because Jesus, the name of Jesus reveals God's goodness, which has been presented to us by way of the gospel message in which we're saved. The name of Jesus also reveals God's greatness because it's in the name of Jesus that we find the infinite power of God by which the universe was created and by which we will be raised up from the grave. And finally, the name of Jesus reveals God's graciousness and, and with all this in mind, I encourage you to remember that God the Father is the one who chose to highly exalt his only begotten son by giving him the name which is above every name. That it's at the name of Jesus that every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now listen, every person is going to bow the knee and every person is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And yet we've been given the choice on where we're going to do that. We can bow the knee here and confess Jesus Christ as Lord here on earth unto everlasting salvation. Or we can wait until the great white throne judgment. And there before the judgment throne of Jesus, you can bow the knee there and confess that he is Lord there unto eternal condemnation. Our choice. We get to make the choice where we bow the knee. We get to make the choice where we confess with the tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord. My encouragement to you, bow the knee today if you haven't already. Confess Jesus Christ as Lord today. Because you eventually will. One way or another. But here in this world, those who submit themselves to Jesus Christ will be saved as we receive the grace of God. And so if you've never before, I encourage you today, bow your knee before Jesus. Confess him as Lord and trust in him so that you can enjoy the promise of eternal salvation. And if you're already saved, then I encourage you in closing, let's submit our lives to the Lord. Don't just call Jesus Lord. Let him be your Lord. Don't say Lord, Lord, and then go on about your own business. but recognize him as Lord and then serve him as Lord. Let's submit our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ each and every day and all for the glory of God. Let's pray.